0: Okay, we're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John. I've titled the series, The Message Became Flesh. And uh, before we dive into today's passage, I wanted to talk about something kind of in popular culture that you may have heard of. Uh, It's, uh, I think we're going to show you this diagram, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And uh, I've heard of this. I will will tell you up front, uh, my area of expertise is not psychology. Uh, So I've I've looked up a little bit about this. Uh, Maslow introduced this concept of the hierarchy of needs in his 1943 paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, and he fleshed it out in a subsequent book titled Motivation and Personality. His hierarchy suggests that people are motivated to fulfill basic needs before moving on to other, more advanced needs. Now, when he was coming up with this, the existing schools of thought, uh, psychoanalysis, behaviorism, tended to focus on problematic behavior and kind of solving those kinds of things. But Maslow was a lot more interested in learning about what makes people happy, the things that they do to achieve happiness. And as a humanist, he believed that people have an inborn desire uh, to be self-actualized, to be all that they can be. So uh, his suggestion is that in order to achieve these ultimate goals, there are previous things that have to be met before you can move on. So if you look at this diagram, he believed that physiological was the most basic need. Unless your basic physical needs are met, you're not going to progress beyond that. All of your focus and attention is going to be caught up in addressing needs like hunger or uh, sleep or, you know, physical needs that you have. Uh, and until that's uh, addressed you can't move to the next order of importance which would be safety securing your safety feeling secure um, and moving on from that to love and belonging the relational aspects of human living on on to esteem and finally uh, he saw self-actualization as the pinnacle of of that pyramid of needs now um I have some some problems with this whole approach to thinking about uh, the meeting of human needs. The first glaring omission is that there's no God anywhere in this triangle. Uh, It's all about us, and it's a very me-focused approach to how do I make my life something. Uh, It puts everything in my hands, Uh, and I, I believe that perhaps there is a better way to think about basic needs and facing them in a way that allows us to arrive at what we were always meant to arrive at. Jesus talks about this in the passage we're dealing with today, and he suggests a very different approach to this question. So we're in John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 42. Let's dive right in verses 31 through 33. In the meantime, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know not. So the disciples were saying to one another, someone didn't bring him something to eat, did they? So we were coming off... uh, Last week we were looking at this encounter Jesus had at the well with the Samaritan woman and uh, kind of the preface to Jesus traveling north to Galilee from Judea uh, and going through Samaria is uh, that he was compelled, he had to go through Samaria. And as we read the story, it becomes evident that it's not that Samaria was the only route to get back north to Galilee. It's that Jesus had work to do that the Father had set out for him in Samaria. And because of that, he was compelled to travel through Samaria. And we saw last week this encounter at the well with the woman where Jesus... uh, ultimately ends up the conversation by confessing openly to her I am he and in that statement he is both claiming the divine name Yahweh I am and he is also answering her question about the Messiah and he is saying both that he is the Christ the Messiah that he is also Yahweh the God she has been seeking. And that conversation kind of concludes just as the disciples are coming back from the town of Sychar where they have gone to purchase some food for their rabbi. So they, they kind of cross paths as they arrive and just then the woman drops her water jar and runs back to town to tell everybody about this man who has told her everything about herself. In the meantime, while she's running into town and telling everybody about Jesus, the disciples have a very different focus, and here's the very interesting thing: uh, you know who was Jesus's apostle to the town of Sicker? It was the Samaritan woman. This. Pariah, this outcast, this loose woman who had already burned through five husbands as was currently involved with a guy who wasn't even married to her. This woman that people doubtless whispered behind her back every, every time she walked by. This is the one that runs into the town to announce that the Messiah is here. I find it tremendously ironic that all of his disciples just went to that town and didn't say a word about Jesus to anybody. They went to town, picked up food, and came back because in their mindset, perhaps they had heard about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Until Jesus has a full tummy, we can't talk about anything else. Uh, But that's that's all their focus has been on, and perhaps they're assuming that it's not the time to deal with the Samaritans. Uh, These mixed uh, they had some Jewish ancestry, but they had intermixed with people from other nations and had worshipped mixed in the worship of other gods together with the worship of Yahweh. And they were, at best, half-breeds. Impure, categorically impure, to the point that many uh, rabbis would refuse to even travel through Samaria because they felt it would contaminate them. So they probably assume that they're just trying to get to Galilee to deal with the Jews there. And uh, passing through Samaria is just a necessity along the way. They didn't think of their time in Sikr as a time of telling people about Jesus. All they were concerned with was getting food for Jesus. And this woman's running back to town. An apostle sharing Jesus with everybody in the town. And the disciples, meanwhile, are there urging him, Rabbi, eat! We got you some food. We've taken care of your basic needs. And Jesus has something instructive to say to them. I have food to eat that you know not. The basic question in this interaction is what constitutes a basic need. What is a need of first order in human living? If we were asked that, most of us would say the same thing the disciples seem to think. You need food and water and air. Once that's taken care of, we can start talking about something else. Jesus says, you know, I have something that is a core need for my very existence that you don't know anything about. I have a food you are unaware of. And by saying this, Jesus is trying to redefine the whole concept of what constitutes a basic human need. There are things we need more than food. The Bible is full of this reminder. When God uh, uh, let Israel go hungry, he said, I, I did this to remind you that not only uh, on bread will man live, but from every word that comes out of God's mouth. Jesus is pointing to a similar concept here. And as usual, the disciples completely misunderstand what he's talking about. They assume he's talking about food and that somehow he got something to eat before they got back. And they're wondering, what do you think? Did somebody give him something while we were gone? Maybe that woman, did she uh, slip him a loaf of bread or something? What, what's going on? And it, it's so... It's such a common occurrence in the Gospels... That Jesus is dealing with cosmically important, grand issues. And the disciples are constantly obsessed and hung up and caught up on the absolute meaningless thing. Who cares when you eat? You can fast a whole day and nothing's going to happen to you. You can fast a week and you're not going to die. Jesus is talking about something more important. But they're hung up on just the way they've been approaching the whole day. Get through Samaria, try not to get dirty, and make it to Galilee. I have a question from these verses. The disciples sought to meet a basic need of Jesus, food. Food. What do you consider to be your most basic needs in life? Let's see what Jesus had to say. Verse 34. Jesus says to them, My food is that I might do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. This is how Jesus defines basic human need. What is the most basic need we have as human beings? To do the will of the one who brought us here. And to complete his work. Here's where the whole psychoanalysis and Maslow's hierarchy gets it completely wrong. Our assumption, our starting assumption is that the reason I exist is me. I exist because of me. And the whole purpose of my existence is to serve my needs. The Bible teaches us a very different perspective. The reason I am here is that God put me here. Therefore, the most basic thing that my whole existence should be centered around is not my own perspective of what I want. It should be, why did God put me here? The one who brought me here, the one who sent me into this cosmos, what in the world did he have in mind when he breathed the breath of life into my lungs? Why am I here? I don't know the answer to that question because I did not bring myself here. God alone knows the answer to that question. Jesus knew in his own incarnation that the whole purpose for his existence on earth as a man was whatever the Father had in mind. That was the sum total reason for his existence. So if you want to talk about a basic need, Jesus said, my most basic need is to figure out what God wants and what part he wants me to play in that. That is the core need I I must resolve in my time here on earth. Jesus knew what that meant for him. It meant years of teaching ministry culminating in a willing, offering himself up to death on a brutal Roman cross and to take upon himself the sins of the cosmos. That was the reason the Father sent Jesus. And we find in this A pattern that is consistently laid out throughout scripture. That the whole perspective we need to have as human beings is not how do I get God to do what I want him to do for me. But turn that completely upside down. Why am I here? What am I meant to accomplish in the scheme of what God is up to? Why did God bring me here? I do not want to squander the life he gave me. I want to, to accomplish what he intended it to accomplish. This is repeated over and over. And we often think, no, I can't deal with what God wants until I've dealt with my own basic needs first. I have emotional needs. I have physical needs. Until they're addressed, I can't think about anything else. Get over yourself. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about the one who gave you life. Your purpose in life is not to feel good, your purpose in life is to accomplish whatever the God had in mind for you when He brought you here. Now, I will tell you a secret. Nothing is more fulfilling and ultimately nothing fills the human soul with a more profound joy than for God to accomplish in us that which he intended. So in a way that is the secret to happiness but it doesn't work if we're just pursuing happiness because oftentimes that ultimate joy will involve a significant amount of suffering. We have to be willing to do that. But we often think there are these basic needs I have to have met. And then I can think about God. What did Jesus say about this in other occasions? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Basic human needs, right? Right? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What is the basic need? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God first, then everything else. We see this pattern throughout the Old Testament when God rescued uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt. This is what he told them in Exodus 13, immediately after he gets them out of Egypt. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beasts, is mine. God reminded Israel, you have to put me first. The first and best of your life. Put it in my hands. In Exodus thirty-four twenty-one, God's talking about the Sabbath. One day of the week that is holy, set apart. It belongs to God. This is God's day, and I devote the whole day to God. Six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now these are the times of the year when a farmer would be tempted to skip Sabbath because you have a window of just a few days to get the sowing done so that it's just at the right time so that the rains come when they do it grows the way it's supposed to you don't have all the time in the world there's a limited window of opportunity to break up the fallow ground and sow the seed and it might be that you're halfway through the work and boom there's Sabbath right in the middle of it or it's harvest time and you know that it might start raining and ruin the whole crop any minute and you're desperately trying to get. Gather in the whole crop before the rain ruins it. God said, I don't care. I don't care what other concerns. I don't care about your livelihood. You put me first. And then you worry about everything else. If that means ruining your crop, you ruin it. I'll take care of you. We look at the Ten Commandments, which is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 23. And in Colossians 3, 5, Paul identifies greed as idolatry. Because this is what God means when he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, I come first. The minute you put something else ahead of me, you have begun to worship another God. The minute you care more about wealth than me, the minute you devote yourself to wealth before me, greed has become your idol. The minute you put your spouse or your children before me, you have become an idolater. Jesus made his demands clear in Matthew 10, 37 and 38. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus made it very clear. I come first. You don't cram God into the leftover corners of your life. You put him smack dab in the middle of it and you arrange everything else around that. What is our most basic need? For God's will to become a reality in our lives. For the work of our lives to be the work of God. I have a question from this verse. Jesus identified doing God's will and completing his work as a need more basic even than food. In your inner reckoning of basic needs, where does doing God's will and completing his work stand? Let's keep reading. Verse 35. Do you not say, yet four months remain and then the harvest is coming? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that they are already white for harvest. I don't know if what Jesus is quoting here is a common saying. It might be that it's, it's a common saying, yet four months remain and then the harvest is coming. It might have been a saying that you would uh, say when you're trying to tell people to slow down a little bit. Don't, don't get Uh, ahead of you know don't put the cart ahead of the horse kind of thing don't get ahead of yourself you got to let things happen at their appropriate times and if it's harvest is four months away man slow down Uh, it might be that that was kind of the sense and that this was a saying that Jesus is referring to otherwise perhaps he's just referring to the time of year they're in and that uh, the disciples would be saying to him if he were to ask that harvest is still four months away, which, you know, the the harvest of the different crops that they might harvest would would begin like in March and end in May, which if that were the case, that would mean that this is taking place sometime in December or January, uh, that Jesus is having these words with the disciples. Either way, it's clear that Jesus is addressing a, a sentiment in the disciples that the time is not ripe for what Jesus is talking about. It's not time yet and I'm sure in the Jew in the disciples estimation of things eventually the Messiah would turn his and he's been talking about being the savior of the cosmos clearly they envision some moment where Jesus starts to spread out and reach other peoples but uh, they know that he hasn't made the kind of inroads even among the Jews that they would hope he had made because there's not a single uh, group of religious... within the different groups of religious leadership in Jewish life, not a single one of those groups has endorsed Jesus yet. None of the people in power have endorsed him. And maybe the disciples are thinking, well, yeah, we can turn our attention to the half-breed Samaritans once we get the Jews on board. Once you rally all the Jewish leadership behind you, then we can start pushing outward and start uh, helping uh, clean up these uh, impure Samaritans and restore them back to genuine worship of Yahweh the way it's supposed to be and cure them of all of their idolatries. Uh, We can begin to think about that, but Jesus, you're just getting started. Now's not the time to be dealing with Samaritans. I wonder how many times... Even those of us who try to devote ourselves to the work of God, who think of our lives as as something that is here meant to accomplish the work of God. So many times we build our own strategies, and I would assume the disciples think of themselves this way. They have left behind family and work to follow Jesus. They're all in. But even they, in their minds... There's a structure to how things have to play out and this has to happen before this can happen and we have to plan and organize and get it all together or it's just never going to work. We got to get the Jews on board first. How many times do we have our plans for ministry and our schemes and our, our laid out designs of what we're going to do? Because of that, Jesus' disciples were in a town of people that needed to know about Jesus and they said nothing because in their minds the time was not right. Jesus had to send a disreputable woman back to the town to announce him because his own disciples failed. They didn't plan for it. They didn't think of it as an opportunity. I wonder how many times I miss out on what God is trying to accomplish in my life because I'm too focused on what I think I'm supposed to be doing. To pay attention to what God is actually doing right now. And to think of each day and every moment of my life as yet another uh, time to ask God, what are you up to? Where do you want me? I love studying the Apostle Paul's life because he was a man who had grand visions and plans for ministry. And you know what? They never panned out the way he planned them. On his second missionary tour, he was determined to get to Ephesus because he knew that was the hub of all of Asia Minor. God didn't let him. He ended up in Macedonia and Greece. We saw as we were preaching through Romans that as he writes the letter to the Romans, Paul's plan is I'm going to go to Jerusalem, drop off this offering, then I'm coming back to Rome. You guys are going to send me, I'm going to go to Spain and we're going to cover the whole western half of the Roman Empire with the gospel. That's a grand vision. It never happened. When Paul got to Jerusalem, he ended up in chains. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea. Then to a shipwreck later, he finally makes it to Rome where he spends at least two more years in house arrest. He never made it to Spain. But you know what? Paul was great about paying attention to what God was doing. And it didn't matter when his plans didn't pan out. He just did what God put in front of him. He sat down from prison and wrote Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians and Philippians. How many lives have been touched and transformed because of what God was doing through Paul in those areas of his life where everything was falling completely outside of his plans for what he was going to do for God. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples. You think it's not time? Look, open your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. The, t- the moment is now. I have a question from this verse. God's timing and the timing of the disciples were two very different things that day outside sicker. How can we live our lives in ways that keep us open to God's timing rather than our own? Let's keep reading, 36 through 38. The one who is reaping is receiving a reward and is gathering fruit into eternal life so that the one sowing and the one reaping might rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one person sows and another reaps. I sent you as envoys to reap that for which you have not toiled. Others have toiled, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus continues talking about this opportunity they have before them. And he's saying it's time to reap, to draw people in. And he says that... uh, The one who is doing this reaping is receiving a reward and gathering fruit into eternal life. Jesus is reminding his disciples that what we are doing in the work of God has eternal ramifications. Are we going to say now's not the time to bring the possibility of eternal life into this person's life? When is it not the time? He reminds them that as we draw people close to God and as we do the work that God wants done, which is drawing people to Jesus, as we are doing that, we we are reaping and gathering a fruit that is life everlasting. We are drawing people from mortality to immortality, from death to life. And Jesus mentions a saying, one person sows, another reaps. I suppose, I I imagine that the the intent uh, of of this uh, saying was to say that uh, one person does all the hard work. One person breaks up the hard ground after winter and uh, loosens the soil and sows and waters and cares for it. And then another guy just jumps in at the last minute, gets the fruit and all the glory that comes with it. There's a similar saying in Spanish that we say, Uh, some people have all the fame and others tease the wool. The idea being that somebody's doing all the hard work of converting wool into uh, the material that you can create something beautiful with and one person does all that work but gets no recognition for it because it's the guy with the, the end product that gets all the recognition. That seems to be uh, the intent of this saying. But Jesus says, you know what? In this case, it holds true. One person sows, another reaps. And what he's saying here is you guys have a unique opportunity to enter into an amazing benefit in something you have done squat to to build. You have done nothing to prepare the Samaritans of Sychar for this moment. God has been doing that apart from you. And I'm not sure. We know that there were some in Samaria who knew the baptism of John. It may be that John has done some work among the Samaritans leading up to this moment. Who knows? But God has prepared this city for Jesus And these disciples who are blundering and oblivious to what God is trying to accomplish get to jump in at the very last minute and reap the great reward for all that God has been doing. But that's fine. That's the way God does it so that the one sowing and the one reaping might rejoice together. I think about that sometimes. We get to step in sometimes at the last moment of years of faithfulness from others and lead a person to Christ or share Christ in a way that a person is just right then finally open to receive it. And we don't see the many years of faithful work by others that came behind that were years of faithfulness in the face of rejection and being dismissed and ignored. I'm reminded of the faithful prophets of the Old Testament whose entire ministries were lived without seeing the fruit that they would so longed to see for their faithful Labor. And Jesus is saying God has so woven it all together that he brings the one reaping and the one sowing together and they can rejoice together because God has bound together the works of their lives so that Jeremiah's tears can become tears of joy as he sees the final result of his faithfulness in the dark days of the fall of Jerusalem. We get to step in so often in that work of reaping but God is the one weaving it all together into this wondrous tapestry that is creation itself. And when we surrender our lives to the work God would have us do we get to rejoice regardless of what part of that work we end up doing. If we are doing the, the sowing and we do it in tears and rejection and it's difficult we will share in the joy of the one who gets to be the one harvesting because god binds it all together verse 38 here he says i sent you as envoys uh, that word could be translated i uh, i sent you but it's basically the verbal form of the word apostle i apostled you to reap And we know what that word means. It means to be sent out in representation of another, to be an envoy, commissioned to represent somebody else. Jesus says, I am sending you out as my envoys, my representatives, and I'm sending you to reap for a a field you've done no work in. Others have. Remember that when you're the one doing the sowing, doing the thankless work, doing the apparently fruitless work that Jesus sees and he knows you were faithful and he will bring you to share in the joy of the one who gets to harvest. Others have toiled and you have entered into their labor. I have a question from these verses. Jesus paints a picture of God as the master weaver, working the thread of each of our lives into a grand tapestry of eternal life. How does this perspective help us live our lives differently than others around us? And let's finish reading verses 39 through 42. Now out of that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman bearing witness. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to remain with them, and he remained there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard and known that this one is truly the Savior of the cosmos. We kind of resolve this story with a description of this harvest that Jesus says the disciples get to participate in. Many of the Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus, initially because of what the woman said. This man knew everything about me. He had supernatural insight into my life. Surely that's just not uh, something to be dismissed. Surely this is a, a man of God, and she draws them out to Jesus, but eventually there's a transfer She shares with them what Jesus has done in her life. And they're drawn to Jesus to see who is this Jesus who did this in your life. But you know, you have to make the next step before this really results in anything. They didn't just show up and say, oh, Jesus did this in your life. Wow, I believe. No, they came to Jesus And they encountered Jesus themselves and they listened to him and they spoke with him and he shared this logos, this message, this communication with them. And upon receiving that, they tell the woman, you know, it's no longer your word we're basing our faith on. It's his word. We believe in him because we have come face to face with him and we have understood who he is. It's interesting that it is the Samaritans who first say in John's gospel, this one is the savior of the cosmos. He has come to rescue everything. Meanwhile, the Jews are still just beginning with their quibbling and fighting and challenging and seeking to dismiss Jesus. All the religious leadership are constantly uh, finding technical things in the law of Moses that they can use to dismiss Jesus. The Samaritans, meanwhile, have figured out exactly who he is. He is the Savior of the cosmos. And this is the thing about faith. We've said it before. God has no grandchildren. Even though we as parents share everything we know of our faith with them, that faith cannot be transferred. At some point, our children have to come face to face with Jesus and determine on their own that they will surrender to him as Lord and Savior. And anybody we bear witness to, we need to bear witness. We need to tell people, look what Jesus has done in my life. Oh, He so longs to do something glorious in yours as well. But until people go, get past my witness to encounter Jesus, I've, I can't save anybody. I can't be Jesus. I introduce and the only kind of faith that works is firsthand faith. I have a final question from these verses. The Samaritan woman's transforming encounter with Jesus was not sufficient for grounding the faith of her neighbors. They had to encounter Jesus for themselves. How does this inform our own efforts to bear witness and see people come to faith? We often talk about basic needs, things we need as a matter of first priority, things we just cannot do without or ignore. And we each have built some kind of a mental list of things that come first. This comes before that. We, we don't write it down, but it's there. What Jesus is trying to remind us about Is that there should only be one thing in the topmost position uh, in terms of what constitutes the most basic need of my existence? And that is for my existence to correspond with what God intended when He brought me into existence. I need that more than anything. I need that more than air to breathe because if I should lose air to breathe and my life should end within minutes, if that falls within the scope of what God is up to, then eternally I am secure and nothing is lost or robbed or taken from me. I can lose anything else But if I lose that, if I miss out on what God intended for my life, I can have everything else in the world and my life is lost. I can have all the food I want, I can drink all I want, I can eat all I want, I can have all the wealth in the world. I can have all of my needs lavishly provided for, but I am utterly ruined Is a food oftentimes we know nothing of. My prayer today is that you discover God as that food you cannot do without. And His will as the very purpose of for your existence, and that you will arrange anything you need to arrange around that so that that becomes the central thing of your life. Let me say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for loving us, for coming to us, for rescuing us, for coming to save the cosmos, and for making this glorious interweaving of our lives this eternal, glorious canvas you're putting together. Lord, help us to be every bit what you want us to be in that. Help us to make that the single most important things of our lives above self-esteem or recognition or love or any of the things we think we need in life. May we crave your will to become a reality. May we long to accomplish the work for which you gave us life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.